Port of Greater Cincinnati Development Authority, the quasi-governmental agency with the unwieldy name of a full governmental agency, took a big risk in buying nearly 200 single-family homes to prevent Wall Street-backed investors from jacking up rent. How's that working out for them? Also on the podcast, the chef who was in the process of writing the sinking ship of Royce when it closed had a new gig. This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, the podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by Courier Editor Tom Demeropoulos. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Andy. Happy to be here. So we're coming at you pre-recorded from the studios of MSA Design, where the podcast Building Ideas is recorded. Host Bill Baker has conversations with designers about how design can change the world. It can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. So you're just getting back from a trip to Columbus? I am, yes. I uh, spent a little bit of time up in the state capitol last week. Did you actually visit the state house? I did not. Didn't do a whole lot of uh, sightseeing. Was there mainly to take the kids up to Kosai. Kosai is a national treasure. And I got a lot of good memories in Columbus. I lived there briefly after grad school and rented a two-bedroom apartment with two other guys. But one of their dads is a carpenter, so he kind of jury-rigged a third-bedroom part of the living room. And we called it the Misty Brief Mansion because we all played a band called Mysterious Briefcase. It was also where, as a cub reporter for Associated Press, I covered the release of 53 Exotic Animals in Zanesville back in 2011, but that's a story for another podcast. And speaking of, this is our 26th podcast. We've been doing Above the Fold officially for half a year. Congratulations to us. This yeah. Is, it's really impressive. I Yeah, you know, not, <laughs> after having taught myself how to produce and edit audio but from scratch, I'm, I'm, you know, a little proud of it. You should be. So as I mentioned up top, it's it's been a little more than a year since the port borrowed $14.5 million to buy a portfolio of 194 single-family homes to prevent them from being purchased by out-of-town investors. The concern was that these investors would flip those houses and also raise prices on low-income renters to recoup their investment. It was a pretty big concern. Chris Wedrick wrote a cover story on that practice in January of last year. Yes, uh, Cincinnati is one of those markets that has a lot of institutional investors coming in and buying up our housing stock, which, you know, it has become, you know, to the level of it's it's an issue that multiple organizations are kind of taking a look at and watching to see what happens with uh, with these investors. Yeah, so there are about 222,000 single-family homes in Hamilton County, and more than 4,000 of them are owned by institutional investors, and the majority of those have been acquired in the last 10 years. So the port, they purchased this portfolio from a, a foreclosed portfolio owned by a Los Angeles company, and they bought them in hopes of converting the current renters into homeowners. But in the years since, they've, they've uncovered some things. So the port believed that 10 of those homes were vacant. Turns out that's closer to 64, meaning they're not getting that rental income to pay the servicing on the, the bonds that they sold to fund the home's purchase. And the homes were in worse condition than expected. So... The port entered 30 of these houses before buying them, and those were probably the best 30 houses on offer. So they, they were hoping to pay $25,000 to rehab the phone, the homes, but so far, on average, they've been paying 68000 for things like aging roofs, substandard electric, no air conditioning, sewage problems. So it's a lot. It is a lot. As a homeowner, you kind of know all the things that come with, with owning a home. There's a lot of upkeep. It's not just, uh, you know vacuum the carpets, and uh, wash the windows. There's a lot that you have to do on a regular basis to make sure your home maintains its value. And obviously that was not happening with the, a large part of this for- portfolio. Yeah, I mean, while you were uh, out gallivanting in Columbus over the weekend, I was scraping and painting my front porch. So Port Executive Vice President Phil Denning said that the, the transaction remains financially stable. 
And the port still believes it's going to be able to break even on these homes when they are sold to buyers. And they plan on selling them to families making 120% or less of the area median income. But they have to remain owner-occupied for the first five years after sale, ostensibly to prevent people from flipping them or renting them out or doing short-term rentals like Airbnbs. So, Tom, do we really only have one billionaire in all Cincinnati? I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like it. According to Forbes, we do, but that doesn't, I don't know if that passes a sniff test. Well, it is Cincinnati, so there there might be some people with uh, coffee cans of billions of dollars in their backyard. Have to be a lot of chock full of nuts cans. <laughs> August Trundle, founder of MedPace, one of the region's largest public companies, he made Forbes list. And according to that publication, his net worth is about $1.6 billion, which is up 23% from the $1.3 billion reported by Forbes in 2022. Now, that only makes him the 1,804th richest person in the world. So, I mean, 1.6 is kind of chump change. Though, he is reportedly wealthier than Kim Kardashian, who is only worth $1.2 billion. Andy, numbers at this size start to stop making sense. It's hard to, it's hard to wrap your head around what it would be like to look at your bank account and see a billion dollars or more. I, I just, it's hard for me to, to understand See, that shows your thinking right there, because I doubt that August has a billion dollars in the bank. I'm sure it's spread out among different portfolios and assets, and it's not liquid. I'm, I'm sure, but yeah, if you look at your balance sheet of your, you know, all your all your holdings and go, oh, okay, uh, there it is. So I, I know that the Powerball drawing fairly recently here was up over a billion, and do you, you play that game with, with, uh, with your wife where you're like, well, if we want it, what would you do with the money? So for me, I'm I'm the type of person that's like, I don't know if I'd want to win because I don't know if I would be able to, to responsibly have that much money. I'd, I'd like to think I'd be able to figure out good places to, to put that money and good causes to donate to in addition to, you know, getting like a jet ski and yeah. other sorts of, you know, snowmobiles and fun stuff. But uh, yeah, I always kind of question like, well, you know, it would, it would just be so life-changing, uh, especially with a lottery, you know, it's not like a person who's worked, you know, their entire life and built a company and came up with something, you know, profound uh, to to have their wealth. To get it from the lottery, I would feel like I don't know. You're just skipping so many steps, to, yeah. to skipping so many steps to becoming a billionaire. Yeah, me and, me and Hannah have had these conversations while we walk our dogs around Norwood, and I'm boring. I would I would pay off my house, I'd pay off my student loans, and I'd figure out a way to invest it so I could just live comfortably off of the proceeds without ever having to work if I didn't want to. I think I'd get actually pretty bored just being a gentleman of leisure. The one luxury purchase, and I use luxury in air quotes, would be a DeLorean because Back to the Future is my favorite movie, and I've always wanted a DeLorean. In fact, they're coming out with a new DeLorean, a new EV, and it's it's going to be a luxury vehicle. I mean, it's 125000 I think, is the base model. But I, I saw a TikTok about it, and they give you a bracelet with the car. And you can give that bracelet to somebody that you care about, and it will measure their heartbeat, and you can feel that heartbeat in the driver's seat. And they can tap the bracelet, and the driver's seat will give you a hug. I'd be afraid about someone just doing that constantly to distract you while you're driving. <laughs> So the long-awaited conversion of the textile building on 4th Street downtown is nearing completion. Its first residents will be moving into one of nearly 300 apartments starting this summer. Andy, we're going to see 4th Street really change in the next couple of years. Projects like this, the textile building, projects like the PNC Tower, 
fourth and race is already finished, but uh, adding a lot more residential units to the heart of downtown Cincinnati along fourth street. Yeah. And it seems like as the world kind of embraces or grapples with the new paradigm of hybrid work and working from home that a lot of these, these skyscrapers in downtown Cincinnati aren't being used for their original intended purposes as office space. Yeah. What's, you know, what's really nice about a lot of Cincinnati's buildings is they're worth saving. They are, you know, great. They've got great bones. They've got great structure. Um, and they divide up into apartments pretty easily. So developers have been, uh, have been very busy, you know, getting control of our class B and C older, you know, office buildings and converting them to, uh, apartments or hotels or other uses. And so this is a rumor I heard, and I, I don't know, I'm hoping somebody listening can can put this to rest for me, A Brownfield at bizjournals.com. I, I had heard that, I think it might have been the PNC building, but one of our skyscrapers downtown originally was constructed with a Zeppelin mooring station so that rigid airships could dock and let passengers off at a rooftop. I think that was the, the PNC building, but I'm not sure. Uh-huh. So anyway, the textile building, that's going to be, well, it's almost done. It's been an 18-month process, uh, and it's, it's cost the Washington, D.C.-based Bernstein companies $69 million. It's being converted into 282 apartments, uh, 20% of which are already leased. And the rents are going to range from $1,000 a month for a studio to 2300 for a two-bed, two-bath unit. They're still wrapping up the commercial space on the first floor and basement amenities. And that commercial space is going to be 5,000 square feet. That's going to be split between two tenants. The larger space probably best suited for a restaurant. And they're currently in discussions with restaurant, cafe, and coffee shop owners, owners locally. The basement amenities are going to include things like billiards table, golf simulator, yoga room, a maker space. When's the last time you heard about a maker space? In a while. Yeah, for, for those not familiar, maker space is a place where you can have tools that you would otherwise need to buy and some that you probably wouldn't have access to, like CNC machines, as well as 3D printers. So if you have an idea, you can go there and just make it. Now, they're also going to have a rentable speakeasy, a gym, and the sub-basement had 30-foot ceilings, so they put in a gymnasium with a basketball court. Yeah, so Andy, so this this project started when I was still the commercial real estate reporter for the Business Courier, and I took a tour of the building. When they had started some demolition work, and you hear the words basement and sub-basement, and you think, oh, I don't know, but... It was really incredible to walk through those spaces. The ceilings are super high. As, as the building's named, it's the textile building, so they used to make a lot of textiles there. Well, to get all that material into the building, they had horse-drawn carriages, and that's mm. what the sub-basement was a ramp that the horses would walk down with these carts full of material, and then the stalls were all down there. So it is, it's a massive space down there. It must be if they're going to have a gymnasium with, with basketball courts. I mean, imagine having that as your amenity for, for your apartments. I think the best I had was a sad little two-bedroom that had been converted to a quote-unquote gym that had a Bowflex in it. So I feel like the – I feel like the – that's a hard word to say. I feel like the revitalization of Over the Rhine could have gone pretty poorly. So you've got this historic neighborhood that oftentimes stands in for things like Brooklyn in the 1800s and period movies to to New York to Manhattan in the 1950s. And when developers began to renew the neighborhood, there was a real chance that the modern architecture could have clashed with the historic nature. But by and large, I don't think that happened. No, I think for the most part, Cincinnati has done a really good job of keeping over the Rhine as over the Rhine. And when they add new buildings, it's pretty obvious they're not trying to match existing architecture it's it's 
it's obvious that this was built in the you know in the two thousands, not in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, but it also doesn't doesn't completely clash with the historic nature. You're not seeing things like, oh, I won't name any names, but historic manufacturing parts of town where you might get new developments that just stick out like a sore thumb. But the City Planning Commission on April 7th approved new rules for buildings in Over the Rhine and Pendleton, and those rules are going to require city council approval. But the new buildings can only be one story high higher, the same height or one story shorter than adjacent buildings. And so-called monumental buildings like Music Hall that are much taller than the average are not counted. And the, the Over the Rhine Foundation has led talks for nine years about these building guidelines, and they, they wanted buildings to be within the range kind of seen within the block face of neighboring buildings. Yeah, and so I think that's the big sticking point here, Andy, is, is the idea of how tall can these buildings be? Because, you know, to, to redevelop and to add new product in over the Rhine, it makes more financial sense to go higher because you can add more units that way. But if you, you know, the neighborhood wants to keep the maintain the, the character of the rest of the neighborhood, so you have to kind of limit how much taller a building can be. And I think that's why you see things like corner buildings are typically much taller because they're kind of more, they're not monument structures like over the, uh, like Music Hall, but they are larger scale than you would typically see in the mid-block of Vine Street. Yeah, it may be pretty jarring and incongruous to see a 15-story building right next to some of the, the you know, old brick facades on, on Vine Street or Main Street. So the Planning Commission recommended that these new regulations should be followed instead of must be followed, allowing for some flexibility, but the, the Over-the-Rhine Foundation was not too, not too pleased with that. They're worried that it's going to lead to some of these rules being broken. And some of those rules include things like balconies. Now, balconies aren't regulated currently, but the new guidelines say that protruding recessed balconies should be in the rear or on non-street-facing walls, and that rooftop decks, which currently should not be highly visible from the front, the new guidelines say they need to be minimally visible from abutting streets and should minimize the disturbance of rooftop views from other buildings. And garages, that's kind of a sticking point too. They're not regulated currently, but the new guidelines ban front and side entrance garages, which could create some property line problems. Yeah, I can see some uh, difficulty getting cars, especially today's modern cars, some of which are quite large through these kind of back alley streets and turning into a garage space. Yes. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I uh, sometimes would have to go through these alleys, much like in Over the Rhine. They're just alleyways that that split main streets, and there was some rebar sticking out of the concrete, and it pulled off my rear bumper, something that I had uh, fixed with bungee cords for the next several years. So Royce. Royce was a much ballyhooed French Brasserie, and I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing that right, and I took five years of French between high school and college. But Royce opened up in a prime spot in the Foundry, 3CDC's reimagining of the old Fountain Place Mall across the street from Fountain Square. It opened up in August of last year, and then it abruptly closed in February, along with sister restaurant Pearl Star and Over the Rhine. Both were operated by the Amaranth Hospitality Group based out of Nashville. Now, I'm going to give props to another publication, something I rarely do. Cincinnati Magazine had a good story about the downfall of these restaurants, and in that story, a lot of former Royce employees gave high praise for the restaurant's new chef, Kobe Bowman. They said things like, Kobe could have fixed this, and I'll go wherever Kobe goes. And those quotes in that story ended up getting Kobe a new job. Yeah, 
that is definitely impressive to see that type of praise for a person and smart of Dell Hall to uh, to pick up on those those quotes and, and follow up on them. Yeah, so let me back up. First things first, Mason Craft Brewer's 16 Lots is opening a brew pub in Newport and the Levy next month called 16 Lots Southern Outpost. And they've assembled the Avengers of Cincinnati food and beverage industry. Uh, Chris Mitchell is the brewmaster, and he was the founding brewer of Woodburn Brewing in East Walnut Hills, and most recently the head distiller, the head brewer, and the head winemaker at the OTR Stillhouse. And Kat O'Connell is going to be the director of hospitality, and she ran Revolution Rotisserie in Pleasant Ridge and helped steer Nine Giant Brewing and opened Copper and Flamin' over the Rhine. So 16 Lots Southern Outpost is an explore-themed brew pub, think 20,000 leagues under the sea, but incorporating the Ohio River and its riverboat history. And as you mentioned, Del Hall, who's the co-owner and chief commercial officer of 16 Lots, he read the Cincinnati Magazine piece, he saw the talk about Kobe, and he asked Kat to reach out. So I'm going to take a pause here real quick. Del Hall, I'm sure you've heard of this, he's the guy who every Lent does a beer fast. He I drinks, am familiar. He only drinks beer and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Yes. That I don't know if wild. I could do that. I could not. That that would be a little hard. I know like Bach beer was created by monks to provide nutrients and energy for the, the long winter months, but that's a little month. But little Andy, much. you start to get hangry after about like 11.25, right? If you haven't uh, had something to eat by then. As, as we record this, I'm already thinking about the leftover pizza I have in my fridge. So Kobe said that he was semi-retired after Royce, and he didn't need to work in a kitchen again, but he was attracted to what 16 Lons was doing at Newport and Levy. He said a lot of breweries do really good beer or really good food or really good entertainment, but not all three, and he thought 16 Lons could pull it off. So he's going to take a, a seasonal approach that elevates brewery food. And Kat, she's going to lead the day-to-day operations in the menu, and Kobe will report to her, but he's going to manage the kitchen and execute her menu while adding items of his own. And the the grand opening of 16 Lots Southern Outpost is May 19th. So today on the podcast, we have Daryl Haley, CEO and General Manager of the Southwest Ohio Regional Transit Authority and Metro. And Chris Wetterick recently wrote a cover story on Metro's ambitious $300 million plan to create bus rapid transit, which is essentially rail on rubber, in two corridors, eventually four, but that span the city. So Daryl talks with us about that plan, but also an Uber-like initiative that's going to be launching next month. This is Daryl Haley on Above the Fold. Some people really don't like to hear how they sound. I'm, I'm one of them, but I've just learned since I edit the podcast, I've learned to disassociate and just pretend it's somebody else talking. There you go. <laughs> what kind of dummy is that? Yeah, so we appreciate you coming down to be with us this morning. Oh, thank you for the invite. So I uh, know uh, before joining Metro officially, uh, you were quite a connoisseur of its lines. Now, I took the 24 from Mount Washington to Hyde Park and then the 52 to get to Clifton so I could uh, so I could go to the Esquire. I, was, uh, I had a high school girlfriend back then who lived up in there in Clifton, so I was, I was well acquainted with those routes. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, my senior year of high school, I only went to school for the first two hours and actually worked the rest of the day. So I took the 11 downtown and then the 33 out to um, Gaston Dalton, where I worked. So I used the bus uh, all my high school. And then, of course, when I went to college at UC, I used the bus to go back and forth to college. Yeah, I, I up until I moved to Norwood, I used the bus just about every day to, uh, to get downtown to work. I, let's see, when I was in Walnut Hills, I think I took the 11 
from right across the street from my apartment, straight shot downtown. And then when I was living in uh, over the Rhine, it was just the 17 straight shot into downtown. It was great. My, my now wife and I, we would, uh, we'd play trivia games on our phones together while we were riding. So I have an interesting story about when I started at Metro. One of the girls in customer service, when I was going around meeting everyone, she looked at me and she said, you used to catch the 11 in front of Withrow when you were a kid. Huh. You rode my bus. Oh, wow. And, of course, it's, you know, 35 years later. And I looked at her and I said, you can't possibly remember me from when I was 17 years old. She said, yes, you caught the 11 downtown every day uh, during the week. So that was uh, you know, a really interesting story. You must have been a pretty memorable passenger. Yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> Daryl got rowdy on the bus, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the two, right? Yeah. So, uh, so Metro is kind of a second act for you, uh, you know, a new, a new chapter in your career. What, what landed you at the organization? Um, I always uh, say this is my second career. I spent um, 28 years in medical supply distribution. Um, I was working in Texas, and I had a, f- a family event that uh, my dad passed away, and I came back uh, to make sure I was here with my mom. And I was just kind of looking around at different careers, and I was looking for something, you know, that I could kind of do with my eyes closed so I could spend enough time with my mom. So I took a job as manager of customer relations at uh, Sorta. And of course it turned into where I sit today. Yeah. Yeah. And then now it seems like, you know, when you took over as CEO, uh, you had a lot on your plate. Yes. But we have an incredible team there. Um, We have an incredible team, a a lot of incredible employees. Um, So it's not, it's not as difficult as it has seemed, you know, getting through this pandemic has been very tough, but we have a group of people that work at Metro that are dedicated, that care about the community, that really want to do the right thing. So we're really focused on growing the system here. You mentioned the pandemic, and, and you guys didn't actually cut any service, right? Absolutely not. We actually added service through the pandemic. We're, we're, we're a little crazy. We understood that the community needed to connect, and the essential worker had to get to work. And in cutting service, um, in cutting service would have caused them to have more trouble getting to the jobs where we needed them. So we added service. And we could not have done that without the support of Hamilton County, the Hamilton County voters, the business community, the elected officials all came out and pushed Issue 7, and we got Issue 7 passed. Um, so it worked out really well. We were actually able to add service, 24-hour service, more frequency, more weekend service, to give people more access to the places they needed to get to. For people who don't remember Issue 7, it was the – transportation tax that uh, passed in that that very strange primary election in March of 2020, where we started an election on kind of the day the pandemic started. And then uh, we didn't really finish it until I think it was May. I could be wrong about that. But it was May. Hmm. Just a totally bizarre situation. Uh, and it was a very close vote. And I always I've always kind of wondered, would that have been more um, lopsided in favor of Metro if we hadn't had all that uncertainty in the intervening time when people started voting to when they finished voting. Yeah, and so you and Chris talked extensively about BRT or bus rapid transit. And before we jump into that, I'm wondering if you could kind of paint the the picture of the scene on the ground at Metro as these conversations were, were taking place about how do you expand service? I mean, what's kind of the pulse of Metro currently? So it's really important to have a robust transit system. Um, One of the things I talk about a lot is it's important that people can live anywhere, have access to jobs anywhere, have access to health care, to education, to entertainment. And where you live shouldn't be a deterrent to connecting the region. 
Um, so we looked at how do we build this very robust system. So it's a robust bus system, but it's also adding other modes of transportation. Things like Metro Now that's rolling out next month, BRT, to really connect this region in a way it's never been connected before. Um, we started off by adding 24-hour service. So we've never had 24-hour service in Cincinnati prior to Issue 7 mm. before. So, you know, there are a lot of second-shift jobs. There are a lot of third-shift jobs. The traditional Monday through Friday, there are a lot of people that are working those non-traditional hours, Saturdays and Sundays. So we really uh, bumped up our Saturday service. We increased our Sunday service. There are routes that never ran on Sunday that actually run on Sunday now to connect people to those second-shift jobs, the third-shift jobs, the weekend jobs to give people that option. Uh, and a lot of the, uh, the next generation, they don't want to own two cars. Some of them don't want to own a car at all, yet they still need to connect to the entire region. So what we're building will allow people to live anywhere and then have connections to jobs, to health care, to education, to entertainment. We're really proud of what we're building. Yeah, the 24-hour service, that's – so I, I used to – if my car broke down, I would, I would go to my parents on Sunday for, for Sunday dinner, but then also you know, do laundry because I was a... Uh, Been there. Yeah, single, living alone in Walnut Hills, and I'd take the 24, but I had to get the 24 by, I think it was 9. That's or correct. Or else I, would never, I wouldn't be able to get back to Walnut Hills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all changed now. Yeah. So for, for someone who may not be familiar, what is bus rapid transit? Uh, bus rapid transit is basically rail on rubber tire. Um, so it moves very quickly through the corridor, and it has different um, aspects to it. Uh, level boarding, um, off uh, the vehicle payment. So when the vehicle uh, shows up, you just walk on. Or if you're in a wheelchair, you just roll on because it's got level boarding or mm. a stroller or a bicycle. You just roll it right on the vehicle so the vehicle doesn't sit there while people pay. It just keeps moving, bus-only lanes. It's got signal prioritization. So as a bus comes to a signal, if the signal's getting ready to turn, it stays green just a little longer so the bus can get through. Or if it's red, it'll turn green just a few seconds sooner so the bus moves through. And then there are things like queue jumps where the bus, as it comes to a red light, it gets into its own lane. Mm. And then the light will turn green for the bus before it does the traffic so the bus can get in front. And there's not stops every block. It's every three-quarters of a mile, every half a mile, so there aren't as many stops. We're going to leave the underlying local routes so people that need to stop, you know, in between those stops, they still have that service, but it'll connect to the broader system, but it'll move you through those corridors much faster. It's interesting because I was, I was looking at the map uh, that ran in our cover story that published last week, and the, it is one of those, those lines is going to go – close to Xavier University, which is close to me. And I, I thought to myself, well, that'd be nice to get downtown for work, but I'd have to ride my bike there. And I know that I've run into problems in the past where, let's say, I bike to Northside and there's someone else with a bike there. Me and my wife have our bikes. Well, there are only spaces for two bikes. So you're saying we could roll our bike right on the bus. You'll roll your bike right onto the bus. Interesting. Yeah, really nice. Another thing on the on the map, I don't think people understand how frequent this is going to be, especially uptown where you have all this concentration of uptown to downtown, where you have this concentration of local routes and the BRT. How, like, if I go to a bus stop, can I just stand there and expect one to come? You won't need a schedule. Okay. There's always a bus coming. You know, during that uh, segment, there'll be a bus about every five minutes. Hmm. Um, so you won't need a schedule. You go to the bus stop, and there's a bus coming. The connectivity is going to be amazing. 
that's that's like a New York City subway frequency yes. to me. Like yes. that's what I think of. I never you don't even worry about it when you that, go down there. That's what real transportation is. Real robust transit is is you don't need a schedule. There's a bus coming. There's a bus coming and the connectivity. So if you're not going there, if you're going uh, east or west, you take that north south route. You connect with another vehicle and go east or west. But really. We'll never complete directly with the car, but we'll get really close. Um, and then you don't have to drive. You let the bus driver do the driving for you. You can sit on the bus. You can read a book. You can work. Um, you know, all other types of things that you can do while you're riding the vehicle. And it takes you out of that stress that people have riding the bus, as well as the uh, price of gas. Yeah, I, I went to a, the concert at Bogart's last night. And, you know, I, I don't want to take my car and try to find parking on Short Vine and then you know, maybe... It was a punk rock show, so a couple of shots and beers and That's right. not have to drive home. So it would be nice to have that amenity instead of paying $12, $15 for an Uber home. Well, as we talk to the community as well, one of the things they're saying is you take the price of your car, you know, your car payment, plus the insurance payment, plus the price of gas, plus the price of wear and tear on your car, you know, repairs and whatnot. You take all of that into consideration, uh, monthly bus pass is $80. You know, you can then take your flexible spending income and you can do something different you can upgrade your living you can take better vacations there's other things you can do with those dollars if there's a very robust transit system um, in place that you can connect to all of the things you you mentioned about your car breaking down i um, in january we hit one million rides for the first time in a month since before the pandemic and we lo- uh, located the one uh, millionth rider and one of the things she said to us was her car broke down hmm. So she decided she was going to catch the bus while her car was in the shop to get fixed. She's since gotten her car fixed, but her experience in riding the bus was so good that she has continued to ride the bus. And she talked about all the money that she's saving mm-hmm. because she's no longer driving her car. One of the other uh, the, one of the other features of BRT is you have you have bus only lanes, and you know you might have a bus you have, might have a lane where the bus can go, and then people can make a right turn. Mm-hmm. That's the only way they're allowed in it, other than the bus being there. Like, do you anticipate the city being, like, what is the city's response been to that? Do you anticipate fights with neighborhoods over parking, removing parking? What does that all look like to you? Um, it, it's worked really well across the country. We've been um, in communications with all of the different um, areas that BRT will run in, as well as the city and the county officials. Everybody is really excited about, about what this will do. And also, the city and the county will be able to use this for emergency vehicles to help them get through these corridors much faster. This will be good. And I'll tell you, across the country, where they've built BRT and they've started with one BRT line, they've built additional BRT lines. The communities have accepted this real well. And the other other real important aspect of building BRT is the economic development that it brings. Affordable housing built along the corridors, businesses moving to those corridors, the really robust economic development around those corridors is really important to the neighborhoods. So um, we look at this and, and so far all of the feedback, all of the feedback we've gotten from the neighborhoods, from all the elected officials, we're all really excited about what BRT is going to bring to this region. One of the feedback uh, that I've seen, and I think you guys have gotten this feedback as well is, uh, you know, I think, I think maybe the first lines up in 27 or t- 2027, or tw- yes. 2028, people are like, why is this going to take till then? Why can't we do it? next year or 25 or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that, yeah, the process and why this is what it is? And it's one of the things that, you know, I always say we do it right. We don't do it fast. 
Um, we've taken a tour around the country and looked at BRT lines. We've asked them what some of the challenges they've had, some of the successes we've had. So we make sure we do it right. There is an FTA process. Um, we're expecting the FTA um, to fund about 80% of the cost of building BRT. So there is a process we have to go through to get that done. And then, of course, we're talking about taking a lane. You know, about 54% of the corridors will be bus-only lanes. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of communication that we have to have with the neighborhoods, with the people that live in the neighborhoods to make sure we get this right. So it's the process of following the FTA regulations, making sure we have very robust communication with the neighborhoods um, to make sure we get this right. And then, of course, there's the building of the, you know, the design work and then the building of the stations, uh, the picking where those bus-only lanes will be, the signal prioritization. All of that takes time, and we want to make sure we get it right. On the flip side, there you know, there's always a, a conservative criticism as well. You know, like it, nationally, transit is struggling. I think you know that Metro is struggling less because of it has added service, and I think you guys have 85 percent. Of correct me if I'm wrong on that of, of your riders back, and some on some routes, it's it's well in excess of what they they did before the pandemic. Talk a little bit about you know why double down on transit at a time where the future seems so uncertain. Well, I, I think. Um People will move, especially this next generation. They're going to move to places. Businesses are going to be attracted to places that have very robust transit because people want to live in walkable, walkable communities. They don't want to own multiple cars. Um, we've done something very different. We spend a lot of time with the community, asking them what they need, how transit can fit into their lives. And we've added service. So while the rest of the country is somewhere between 65 and 70%, a pre-pandemic ridership. We're over 85% a pre-pandemic ridership. We've, uh, since the beginning of this year, we've seen periods where we're above pre-pandemic ridership. So we believe just the opposite. We believe people want transit. And, you know, one of the things, the routes that we've added service to, that we've added 24-hour service, that we've added a lot of frequency and weekend service, those are the routes that are 196% a pre-pandemic ridership. Some are 167, 130% a pre-pandemic ridership. So as we look at this, the proof is kind of in the pudding. Where we've added really robust transit, the community has really uh, come back to transit, and not just the riders that rode before, but we've got new riders. And then, of course, the story that I just told about the woman whose car broke down, who tried transit, and then she continues to use transit. We're building something that the community really wants, and we're spending a lot of time. So on BRT alone, we've had more than 70 public meetings where we've been listening to the public to make sure we're building is exactly what the public wants. And, you know, we made a lot of promises in um, Issue 7, and we are going to, we're going to live up to every promise that we made. So we spend a lot of time with the community. They put their faith in us, so we're going to build what they really want. A, cha a state uh, chamber of commerce official remarked to me recently, well, you know, pu public transit shouldn't be what it is now where we have the, the bus stops and the, the, you know, the hub and spoke system. You know, it should, it should be more like Uber. Or it should be more like uh, Lyft or whatever. And you guys are actually looking at some of that. You mentioned Metro now earlier. I don't think people, unless they've kind of heard the ads on radio, are maybe aware of what you guys are doing there. Can you talk about that, please? Uh, sure. So, you know, the corridors where there's a lot of density um, and a lot of space for 40-foot buses works great. But then there are also a lot of neighborhoods where the 40-foot bus won't traverse those streets as well, or there may not be as much density. 
And I talked earlier about you should be able to live in a, in a region where you can live anywhere and have access to public transportation. So some of those areas where the street network isn't wide enough or there's not enough density, we're going to roll out what we're calling Metro Now. And it's like an Uber. Um, you have an app or you can make a phone call and there'll be vans versus 40-foot buses. And you get on your app and you say, I need to go to the grocery store. As long as you're staying within that same zone, and the app will say there will be a vehicle at your front door in 13 minutes. Hmm. And a vehicle will show up. It will pick you up, and it will take you to Kroger's or anywhere in that zone. It will also connect you to the broader system so you can actually connect to the entire system. So connections, the jobs, more jobs, higher-paying jobs. So we're rolling out six zones. We're going to start with the Springdale area and the Coleraine area, and we're doing it as a pilot. Um, we're back out in the uh, communities right now, making sure that what we're building is what they want. We'll run that pilot for six to eight months. We'll see what we learn from that, and then we're going to roll out another four around the end of this year. So really connect this region in a way it's never been connected before. So even if a 40-foot bus can't get into your community, you'll be able to use Metro Nail to connect to jobs, to health care, to education in that zone. You know, one of the things that I talk a lot about is some of these areas where people don't have good uh, transit, they'll walk down to the corner store and buy milk and pay three or four times as much for it. Now for $2, they can use an Uber-type service through Metro. Metro Nail, the vehicle will pick them up, take them to the grocery store, and then take them from the grocery store back home. So we're really excited about that. So you take this very robust transit network that we're building in the region, and then you add Metro Now for those neighborhoods where the 40-foot buses don't work real well, and then you put on top of that BRT, bus rapid transit, that moves very quickly through those corridors. And then transit, public transit, becomes a real option for owning a vehicle and the connecting you. And now I don't have to drive my car. I can let somebody else do the driving. Where did the idea for that come from? What's the genesis of it? I'm not sure exactly where the idea came from. BRT has been built around the country in in several neighborhoods, um, several cities uh, and regions, as as has um, um, uh, mobility on demand, which is what Metro now is. Um, We just want to make sure that what we build is for this community. So we spend a lot of time in the community talking to people in the neighborhoods, past uh, riders, current riders today, and also people that don't ride. What is it that they really want to see? And we're designing a system that fits this region. When does Metro Now launch? Is there a date or is it already out? It launches in May. In May, okay. We, we just started receiving our vehicles. Um, we're going to get this vehicle out in the communities here real soon so people get a chance to see them. We're really excited about it. All right, we'll keep our eye out. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Thank you so much for being with us, Daryl. It, it is my pleasure. Thank you guys very much for being interested in public transportation. We're really proud of what we're building and excited at, at what a difference it's going to make um, to this community. Go out and visit our website. We are at go-metro.com. You can learn all about BRT. You can learn all about Metro now. You can see all the exciting things we're doing to the current network. We used to be a hub-and-spoke system right. where you had to come into downtown to get anywhere. But as we're overlaying the crosstowns, as we're adding frequency, you no longer have to come all the way downtown. We're really shortening the time people have to spend on the bus. And the important thing is more connections, connections to different neighborhoods, to 
more of this region. You know, we talk about connection to more jobs, connection to higher paying jobs, which will drive down poverty, which will drive down crime uh, in our region. A lot of really exciting things going on in public transportation. Thank you guys very much for having me on today. Absolutely. Above the Fold is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. Above the Fold is recorded in the studio of MSA Design. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold.